If you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, we'll continue with our study of the life of Abram and Sarah. <clears throat> Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will, I, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord. Abram believed in the Lord. And God reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the Ur, of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and possess it. And he said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid them half opposite the other, each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down on the carcass and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. The word of the Lord. A lot of drama. And something weird that we don't understand. This thing about bringing all these animals and cutting them in half. And actually, just to give you a, a heads up on that, that uh, that is a, a special way to make a covenant. It is, it, it is known in the ancient Near East. It's not explained much in the Bible. It appears one other time in, Je in Jeremiah. 
but you, you do this, you sacrifice these animals. And the reason this is an oath vow, this is such a powerful uh, way of signing an agreement between two people, is that it, it acts an awful lot like a religious sacrifice. So it, it, it actually invokes that the two people who are making an agreement not only make an agreement between one another and in their society, but in the presence of God, that they will keep this vow. So that's what's going on there. And, this, and, and, and actually, there's only about two verses in here that have information that you would see in a summary of salvation history of what this little chapter is all about. But if I were to just read those two verses and leave out all the rest, there'd be no story. And the power of what God is saying, the power of the information isn't in the information. It's in the relationship that God has with Abram and the power of that relationship. In chapter 14 that I uh, studied two weeks ago, Abram won a great victory against a large army of foreign marauders. He had liberated all of the captives, including his own nephew, Lot. He had returned all of their property and restored them to their homeland. Abram refused the reward, the plunder of the battle that the king of Sodom offered him, insisting that Abram would trust in God alone to reward him so that the glory would be God's alone. Now, God made no special commandment here. Abram understood from his relationship with God that this was God's will. His decision was that only God is going to make something out of my life, and I will accept it only from him. Abram's life was part of something bigger than Abram, and he knew that. Abram then accepted the blessing of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God Most High, who came to refresh him with a royal banquet of wine and bread and a blessing from God. And finally, Abram came home tired. He came home empty-handed. He was exhausted in good works, but sustained by his hope in God. Today's story, chapter 15, occurs not long after the defeat of the foreign kings. Abram encountered God twice in two days, and the easiest reading of it is that Abram met with God, God, or I should say God met with Abraham one night, and that night went through the whole night together and into the next day and the following night. So uh, two encounters over two days. The first encounter was at night in Abram's tent, perhaps just as Abram was falling asleep. And God came to him and rejoiced with him, possibly as Abram was going over the events of the last few days in his head. Abram's ready for sleep. He's worn out. And God says, now we've got to talk about this. He says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. The choice of these three sentences the, these, and the words in them is very militant and even militaristic. It is the talk between two warrior kings just back from a shared battle. Do not fear. God is saying, never fear, Abram. 
You have chosen me over this world and you will not regret it. Don't doubt for a second that I will vindicate your faith. God says, I am your shield. And in that, God is saying, I have your back. And we fight as one. When your arm swings, it is with my strength. And your reward is very, very great. And the very, very great is a very strong adjective. God says to Abram, I know what you gave up. And I know why you gave it up. We don't fight for the junk and the plunder of bandits and petty kings. Your reward is glory, Abram. And not glory defined by a small people, a ragtag people in a land full of tribes, but my glory. You can't begin to imagine where this is headed. Imagine yourself a clap on the back. You have exhausted yourself. Maybe it's just parenting your children faithfully, putting in another day at work, doing what you need to do to faithfully care for your family. Maybe you have undertaken a special task, uh, helping somebody move their belongings, uh, uh, helping in a church event or a community event, something that you felt that God wanted you to do as a service and an expression of his grace to the community. You come home and you're tired. Imagine a clap on the back and a bear hug from God. Together, God and Abram have shared daring deeds, close calls, risks taken and rewarded, and a bond of trust and loyalty has developed between comrades. It's been going on for decades, and it's been a big exclamation mark has been putting on, put on it in this last encounter where Abram goes at the, to the aid of his community and to the aid of his family to rescue them from bandits. God isn't just showing up after the battle is over. He went to battle with Abram. As a matter of fact, God led the charge because it was God's spirit of mercy and justice that rose up in Abram to defend his nephew and his neighbors in the first place. If Abram had been a good businessman, he said, hey, not my problem, and kept his head low and said, it's, it's, it's rough for them, but at least it's not me and I'm not going to stick my neck out. He felt compelled by God's revelation of what it meant to be a good citizen, a, a just and merciful a mem a family member. And in this, God was a comrade in arms. These are two warrior kings celebrating a shared battle and victory. It is the far greater of the two kings is vowing protection and greater victories yet to the lesser king, who is his close companion. And they rejoice in their friendship and in their future. Abram becomes reflective in this. He addresses God with respect, saying, calling him sovereign God. But he's also straightforward and honest. And in verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. 
I'm childless, God. Now, we've been talking about, so you've been giving me these tremendous promises. I'm getting older and older. Sarah's getting older and older. The days stretch on. And, and right now, my, my, my nephew has left us. I have, there is no connection between us. And the only one left is this, this hired servant, Eliezer from Damascus. He's the closest thing I have to an heir. I'm childless. My only heir is a stranger that I brought in from the outside. I confess I'm disappointed and I'm a little confused. And God assured Abram. God took Abram outside. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And God took Abram outside and together they sat under the Clear, moonless sky filled with stars beyond count. Now, people from the city who read this have no idea what this means. And as a matter of fact, Gail remembers teaching uh, uh, Pioneer Girls, all city kids in there, and uh, you know, counting the stars. And well, that's, that is actually about four dozen stars, is what you'll see in a city on a good night. Not a big deal. We know a little different. God spoke in the same formula that he had used earlier in the evening. He addressed Abram's fear, and he says, listen, you don't need to fear about this. This man will not be your heir. He says, I am your shield. I've got your back. God's saying, I will see to it that you have an heir who is a son, a real son, not a servant, not a faithless nephew. And he says, your reward will be very, very great. And he took him outside. And he took him outside and he said, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. The word look means to take a long look, to gaze, not a cursory glance. Look around, Abram. Gaze up at the heavens with me. Take it all in. Try and count the stars, just the ones that you see in front of you without moving your eyes. No, I'm not going to tell you how many. It's impossible, isn't it? Your descendants will be even more than these. I used to come up here to the North Shore as a young man. I lived down in the Twin Cities with Gail's cousin. We'd come up during grouse season. And we would escape the Twin Cities as well as our worries and frustration and just sit around a campfire all night into the wee hours of the morning. There were some really great nights when the sky was moonless and clear, and you know what I'm talking about. The cold in the fall air had drained the sky of all the moisture, so there was no haze, there was no cloud, no fog. It was as if you could look up and see it and reach out. And if you jumped hard enough, it felt like you would just fly off into the sky. There were so many stars. It was so beautiful. It was so dark and so quiet. Imagine if you were sharing that kind of night together with God, looking up at the Milky Way in a clear, moonless sky, Hearing God speak to you with the same voice that he called all of that into being. 
and talk to you. Telling you incredible blessings beyond imagining. Not just that you were going to have a family, but telling you that you were part of something big, something huge, and that your life would amount to something. Verse 6, Then Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, God reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. God blessed Abram. But the blessings themselves had little weight without the experience of God's partnership, God's mentoring, and God's fellowship. And that was growing. Incident by incident, Abram's increasingly personal experience of God brought power that the words of God's promise alone lacked. He didn't just grow in knowledge, but he grew in trust and intimacy with God. Now the next encounter seems to spill over from the first night into the next day, and Abram has another dramatic moment with God. God approaches Abraham with another bold and joyful assertion. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. Now, we, see, we hear the phrase Ur of Chaldees, and we think, yeah, Bible talk. I have no idea what that means, no idea where that is. But what God is saying to Abram is, he's reminding Abram, listen, I, knew, I know that you're a citizen of a great country. I know that you are, you are not like a people, these people here in this, this Canaan, this land of nouveau riche, of tribal kings who have gotten rich but have no culture and have no cohesiveness. There's no real greatness to their society. I know you come from a society that is great and that you know what it is. You know what greatness is. I brought you out of that greatness, and I am promising you greatness. So you've learned today, Ur of the Chaldees and all for I. Got it. All that, all that knowledge, just rack it up. Having learned that faith is a conversation that is built on trust and expressed in honesty, Abram then asks God to give him something to hold on to right here and right now. Since most of the blessing that God is talking about won't happen in, during Abram's lifetime. And in verse 8, he said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And in verse 18a, God says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And that's what this crazy thing about animals being cut in two. All right, so they were cut in two, and the pieces were laid on either side, and the two people walked between it, and that signed the deal. It, would never, it didn't happen very often. For one thing, it was very expensive. That's a lot of meat, and you can't just throw it in the freezer. You're going to have to feed a lot of people with it. For the second thing, it's just a lot of work. And it lay there during the day, and, and Abram sat there that whole day and shooed away all the... The, uh, the buzzards and the crows that were coming. The phrase made a covenant is more literally translated cut a covenant or an agreement. God directs Abram to prepare an oath ritual. 
An oath ritual isn't described anywhere in the Bible, and it only appears another time in Jeremiah 34, in which people who have passed between halves of a sacrificial calf are bound by an oath. Perhaps its similarity to religious sacrifice makes it more binding. Long after Abram's, or I'm sorry, in this case, the different animals, some large and some small, have a representation of Abram's family, his descendants, some greater, some lesser. God's faithful promises, which Abram obeyed and trusted, serve to protect Abram's children from the predatory cultures around them, which may be uh, pictured in Abram chasing away the birds. But regardless of these passing possibilities of imagery, long after Abram's death, represented by that deep sleep that he fell into, God himself will rise up and will lead Abram's children out of generations of slavery and into the land of Canaan, which they will fully possess. And there were two, there were two objects that represented the person of God passing between these split animal carcasses. One was a smoking oven. And by a smoking oven, some of you are thinking, I wonder if the oven came on at home. I wonder if our Sunday dinner is being burned. It's not that kind of a smoking oven. Although it is an oven. It's, how many of you know what a tandoor, tandoor oven is? Raise your hands. How many know what a tandoor? Okay. A tandoor oven is, looks like, you see right up there, it looks like a big urn with huge, really thick uh, porcelain walls. And it's used, you put wood into it and burn, or if a brush is all you have, you have a smaller tandoori, and you put that brush in there, and you get this really hot fire that is captured, the heat is captured by the tandoori itself. And then you can either, uh, you'll see, uh, and particularly uh, tandoori ovens being Indian, you'll see them taking naan and putting it up against the sides of the oven and, and quick cooking it. Or they'll hang kebabs or meat down in there and have it cooked. So it's in, uh, that's the oven that, that Abram's seeing with smoke coming out of it. There's a fire in it. And then there's a torch that's lit, that's brightly lit, and that's progressing too. The smoke of God's holiness and the light of his truth will guide and protect the children of Israel in the day that God leads them out of Egypt. And it will take the form of a pillar of smoke by day and of fire by night. So God is giving Abram a prophetic vision of where the greatness, this man of Ur of the Chaldees, a great people who knows greatness, God is saying, you are part of something great. God reveals in detail what he plans to do with Abram, who will live until he is full of days and die in honor and peace. He also reveals something of what he's going to do with Abram's descendants. God submerges Abram into a deep sleep, which he experienced as a terror and a great darkness. And God discloses to Abram the hard path that he has chosen for his descendants. So it isn't all rainbows and unicorns. And the darkness of it, and the darkness, the very sleep and the darkness of it may, uh, represents Abram's death for sure, because he will be dead when all of this happens. But there is a terror about it because there's a terrible, there's a terror, a terrible goodness 
about God's holiness. They experienced this in the form of, of generations of slavery, but the promise is that God will not leave them in the midst of it. He will eventually, when he has accomplished his purposes, rescue them and fight for them and make a great nation out of them. Much later, as he's leading them out of Egypt and into Canaan, God will say to the children of Abram and Israel that it was a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. And God himself will undergo his own fearful thing that will be even darker and more terrible. And that's even shadowed here in the picture that Gail has drawn. The, the ultimate of this dark night of death that will lead into light, of death that will lead into resurrection, the cross itself. So, why all this drama? Why not just give some concrete commandments because God didn't want his relationship? Why not just give some concrete commandments that Abram can follow and then Abram can go about leading his life and get done what God wants him to get done? It's because God didn't want his relationship with Abram to be reduced to a moral code, to a lifestyle. If Abram was to be a partner, he must know and appreciate the drama of God's glory. He must feel it in his bones. It's not just about concreteness of obedience. It's about mystery and darkness. It's about the presence of a God whose holiness is both good and scary. Let's close with this. Drama, encounters with God, intimacy, partnership. If these are foreign concepts to our faith today, it may be because we don't expect more. And therefore we don't ask or look for more. It may be because we don't really want God to be that bright and multicolored and unignorable in our life. If I remain satisfied with a view of Lake Superior from my living room picture window nearly half a mile away, then my experience of the lake would become very dull and uninspiring. If I see that same lake from that same window and I bend down there and I've heard the crashing so that I can't even hardly hear myself think, I've seen the lake pick up metric tons, thousands of metric tons of rock and carry it down a mile down to the other edge of the beach. I've seen it. I've felt the spray. Then I know so much more about the lake. And I can even feel that again when I look at it from my picture, from my living room window. Most of Abram's life was a matter of managing his considerable livestock holdings, dealing with his staff and family conflicts and trauma and drama, and walking through the length, much of which he brought on himself, and walking the length and breadth of Canaan, erecting altars and lifting up the name of the Lord in all of those places. But in all of that everydayness, he knew that he was part of something bigger, bigger than just his life and his prosperity. And he was ready and willing to cross over into a world with angels and God sightings at a moment's notice. Every encounter with God touched his heart because he let it, because he wanted it, because 
He was obedient in the little things. And he was looking to be part of bigger things. He embraced those moments and looked forward to the next encounter, though sometimes years would pass between them. They began as general promptings in the night, a dream, a message, a, a, a feeling that he couldn't escape. But they grew with intensity and clarity until, for Abram, God's visit actually came in bodily form, as we'll read later. God was not sharing information. He was sharing himself with Abram. And that's what our faith walk is supposed to be all about. And it can be true. If we would have God share his life with us, I think the most promising start is to intentionally place ourselves in a place, set aside time to be where we can actually hear him if he wanted to talk to us and expecting that he would want to speak with us. Regular prayer time, regular reading of God's, regular worship of him, regular meeting with his people. Another key element, honestly, is risk. That is, taking risks by putting our skin in his game. Taking a risk to do more with your business than just make profit, which I'm proud to say I have seen young men and women and others in this congregation do with their businesses. It is taking a risk to, to befriend that kid at school that no one else sees. It's expecting that there is something God would have you do with him that will conquer your fear, in which God will empower you and have your back and will give you a share in his glory, the excitement of his great story. Look for signs of God at work around you. Look for work that, for some reason, captures your heart and mind, and you think, I need to be part of that. And seek ways to join him in it. When our question comes, when our question becomes, how might we fit into his great story? We're finally asking the right questions and praying the right prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, your word is a lamp to our feet. And we see and hear in Abram's story about what it really means when you're all in. And Lord, I, I pray for us, Lord God, that we would set aside time to hear your spirit and pay attention. And what's more, expect that we're going to hear you. And Lord God, that we would take whatever small, medium, or large risks that you would have us take so that we might enter into an adventure with you. For I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.